Good afternoon, my name is Varsha, and you're listening to the Common Thread Podcast. It is a very snowy day today in New York City, and I'm sitting in the uh, here in the office of Purnima Kapoor, the Executive Director of Planning of New York City. Hi, Purnima. Hi, Varsha. Thank Welcome you. to New York City. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Sure. So I just wanted to start off with um, kind of talking about your background and where you started and why you found yourself in city planning. So, um, I grew up in India, um, and, um, you know, in a big city, Delhi, Mm -hmm. I've always loved urban places. Mm -hmm. I've not known anything other than urban places. So, um, you know, when it came time to go to college, I initially started studying physics at the Delhi University, Mm -hmm. and um, I had always been interested in architecture. Mm And I think after the first year of studying physics, I realized that was really not for me and decided to go to architecture school. So I went to School of Planning and Architecture in New Delhi Mm -hmm. and loved it. Loved, um, you know, the built environment, learning about how buildings are done. But most sort of technical colleges in India tend to be very straight and narrow in Mm -hmm. their focus. Mm -hmm. So while we did a lot of sort of studios and in-depth understanding of the built form Mm -hmm. and we did study a village at one time or you know old historic sites it really wasn't a broad-based kind of education so after I finished that I worked for a year as an architect and then decided that I wanted to pursue graduate studies and I started a program in um, architecture school. I had my first architecture degree, so I started a program in a Master's of Science in Architecture Studies, Mm -hmm. and housing was really the focus, which I'd always been interested in. And as I started doing that, I found myself more and more interested in the larger urban uh, fabric and urban studies. Mm -hmm. And it's also because this was a graduate school level, I didn't have a lot of core requirements. And I really had the liberty to do things I wanted to do without sort of uh, jeopardizing my program. Mm -hmm. And I loved the freedom of it. So I took courses in government. I took courses in economics. I took courses in negotiation. I took courses sort of across the board Mm -hmm. and ended up doing a dual degree in um, architecture and urban planning. And have since then worked largely as a planner. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. And so all of those, covering kind of all those different fields, I think definitely sets a base for urban planning just because you're looking at all of those different mm-hmm. things all the time within a city. That's that's great. So you also, so after um, MIT, you came here, and did you start off in the planning department? I did. I see. I did. I had done, you know, summer work in Boston mm-hmm. in architecture. I worked for a bit as an intern at Boston Parks and Recreation as well, but I really found my home here in New York City. I came here, I started out as a young planner in um, Brooklyn, and this is when Brooklyn was not cool and hip (laughs) as it is today, Uh, and when I first started, this is in the early 90s, I came here at the end of 1989. Mm -hmm. Um, Our struggle really was that no one wanted to be in many parts New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of disinvestment. Uh, there was the the um, 
the markets were down in the early 90s, the mm -hmm. depression at that time really, or the recession uh, really had an impact, particularly outside of sort of Manhattan. And from, you know, I started when we were really trying desperately to, mm -hmm. to get our neighborhoods to uh, be reinvested in and to try to bring them back from the ravages of urban renewal and disinvestment and vacant properties. And over the years, I've sort of moved around within the city planning uh, family. So mm -hmm. I've worked in Brooklyn, I've worked in the Bronx, I've worked in Manhattan. I was the director in both Brooklyn and the right. Bronx. And at this point, I am the executive director. Yeah. So I've sort of worked my way up through the ranks. Yeah. When you moved from the Bronx to, or from Brooklyn to the Bronx, what sorts of uh, what types of issues did they face that were different? So I moved to the Bronx um, in the summer of 2001, okay. just before 9-11 happened. And it was the end of um, the Giuliani administration here, mm -hmm. and we knew that there was going to be a change in government, although at that time no one knew who the new mayor was going to be. There was also going to be a change in the borough president of the Bronx. And one of the reasons I chose to go to Bronx at that time was that during um, the preceding you know, decade or so, mm -hmm. um, the Bronx had really been sort of neglected when it came to urban affairs and urban planning. Partly it was political, partly it was just that you know, the disinvestment that was happening in the rest of, the, or had happened in the mm -hmm. rest of the city, although places like Brooklyn were sort of starting to become more vibrant again, mm -hmm. Bronx was still far from it. So there was a real opportunity to go there and sort of think about how a, a, a borough that had been, um, you know, not seen development in a long time right. could be really reimagined in a way that mm -hmm. was thoughtful, that was, you know, working with the city's assets there, which was largely the land, and yeah. a lot of um, sort of, there was a desire on the part of Bronx sites to really see some uh, good development. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and I think from a sort of uh, institutional end, there was also a, a, an opportunity to build an office there that had really been weakened because there wasn't a lot of work happening. Right. So uh, from Brooklyn, where you know most communities were fighting development, yeah. going to the Bronx was really sort of in some ways a very um, different experience mm -hmm. because people really wanted development. They wanted to see investment in their community. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a good opportunity for me to sort of do planning from a different end. Yeah. In, so you mentioned earlier um, urban renewal and how that was problematic for Brooklyn. For um, most of the city. Yeah. So how is urban renewal different from development? Like what is, where is that line and what makes it kind of uh, harmful to an area? So when I refer to urban renewal, I'm referring actually to policies that were in place in the 1960s and 70s okay. by many parts of the U.S., not just New York City, mm -hmm. where really the thought was that in order to in order to revitalize some of the older communities that mm -hmm. were considered to be sort of uh, problematic, you know, poverty, crime, whatever it was, that there was mass uh, demolition 
of older buildings okay. and older communities. Yeah. And the idea was that you know the city and the state would step in with these new shining buildings, mm -hmm. and everyone would have um, you know a new home in a new provided right. community. And I think what that really, while the intention may have been good to sort mm -hmm. of bring new development to areas that that were uh, generally the poorer sort of edges of the city. Mm -hmm. There was very little thought given to the people that were there and right. the communities that were there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you sort of do this mass demolition, absent an equally aggressive building program right. that sort of takes that community somewhere else, mm -hmm. it can be pretty devastating. Yeah. And so that is really what had happened to many parts of not just New York City, mm -hmm. but most major cities right. in, the, in the United States. So I'm not, you know, I'm referring to that period yeah. more than okay. More okay. Than sort of the so then do you think now with in-city planning departments across the nation, um, there's a bigger focus on working with the locals in an area and understanding their considerations or um, what they feel is the most necessary for their community? Like, what is the process of reaching out to those communities? So, you know, the, that sort of whole urban renewal move, movement mm -hmm. led to a lot of um, unrest and then a movement really towards more of a community-based right. kind of planning process. And now that's 30 years ago, and we are still you know, working with sort of, since that time, the move really has been towards thinking about redevelopment with more of an infill approach mm -hmm. rather than sort of a, a mass reconstruction right. of a neighborhood. And also really looking at not just the buildings in the neighborhood, but the people that make that neighborhood. Yeah. So community-based planning mm -hmm. has been um, now in practice for a number of years, mm -hmm. not always as successfully from the community's perspective. Right. But in New York, we really believe very strongly in that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our planning is really based in the five boroughs yeah. that we serve. So it's not centrally based. Right. We have offices in each of those five boroughs. Mm -hmm. We have planners that are liaisons to what are called community districts, community boards here. Uh -huh. And the, com the city is divided into 59 community boards. Okay. Each board represents the neighborhood. There mm -hmm. are people from the residential uh, stakeholders to business owners to mm -hmm. people that, you know, may be um, working there, the, the clergy, everyone is, you know, yeah. part of that, that community board. And we work very closely with the, that group Mm -hmm. And with stakeholders, any time that we are doing a, a, a planning uh, effort in a neighborhood. Right. So I have planners in all five boroughs that e each of the 59 community boards in the city mm -hmm. has a planning liaison. Okay. And our bor borough offices are very much in tune with their communities. Mm -hmm. And any planning effort we do is very much based in that right. sort of ethos. So as um, the person who kind of oversees all of them, do you work closely with the mayor then? I work closely with City Hall, the deputy mayor and the mayor. Mm -hmm. I also work very closely with all of the planning yeah. staff here and the planning directors and our, and, and our offices yeah. here. 
So okay. yes, both. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are a mayoral agency. Yeah. The way we are set up is, you know, we respond to the mayor. Mm -hmm. So partly, you know, we, we our policies mm -hmm. are in some ways framed mm -hmm. as a new administration comes in and as the mayor lays out his right. or her agenda. Mm -hmm. But we are at our core a planning agency. We use our planning knowledge mm -hmm. and our planning skills to then translate those policies right. into the best possible outcomes yeah. for neighborhoods. Okay. One question I did have kind of as we touch on the mayor's role, he just, or in February, I believe he rolled out kind of his most recent housing plan. It was specific for veterans, uh, seniors, and low-income families. How does one go about um, deciding where these homes are going to be and does it happen through inclusionary zoning practice or do you build separately? So, um, you know, the mayor actually has had a housing policy mm -hmm. in place for three years now, yeah. ever since he came into office. Yeah. So one of the first things that this mayor did when he came into office was mm -hmm. say that he understands the issues of affordability mm -hmm. and the fact that you know, in New York City, a majority of the people are stressed when it comes to the ability to pay rents. Right. We are a rental city. Unlike yeah. many other parts of, of the United States, 65% mm -hmm. of people in the city are renters, mm -hmm. not owners. So making rents affordable is a very, very important housing strategy. Right. So what, what we did in the first year of this administration mm -hmm. was to really revamp how we approach redevelopment for housing in the city. Mm -hmm. So we instituted something called the Mandatory Inclusionary Housing Program, or MIH for short. Mm -hmm. And what MIH does is, it says any time we, the city, for our own um, in, in our own initiatives mm -hmm. or for a private initiative, if a developer comes in to us and says, I want to upzone an area, that means I want to create opportunities for more density, more mm -hmm. housing anywhere in the city, uh, that's not a one and two family home, but like right. a multifamily home district, that we are going to require a certain percentage of that housing be set aside for affordable housing. Okay. And we've defined affordable housing in a very broad way mm -hmm. because while there is need for housing at the lowest ends, yeah. people who are really, you know, uh, poor, making mm -hmm. twenty-five, thirty thousand right. dollars a year, there is also a crisis of affordability for our working class. Right. So our people, you know, that are our teachers, firemen, mm -hmm. you know, city workers. Often, right. um, this is an expensive city. Yeah. And the way this program works is that anywhere we upzone, we mm -hmm. are going to require somewhere between 20 and 30% of the housing okay. to be set aside for affordability. The percentage is higher if the affordability levels are higher. That means it's more of a moderate income mm -hmm. uh, uh, provision. Yeah. And the, the numbers are lower if it's the deeper affordability. That okay. means you're reaching the poorer sort of populations. Right. And the idea is that um, this is where the, the sort of private sector in the hot markets, mm -hmm. in markets that are strong, can actually cross-subsidize this housing. So that our challenge, unlike when I started here in the 90s, 
to now is that we don't own a lot of city property here. I see. So this allows the city on private sites and mm -hmm. through private development to be able to secure some housing that is affordable. And that does two things. One is even if it's providing housing for more of the moderate income levels mm -hmm. or you know, even some of the lower income but not the extremely low income mm -hmm. levels, is one, it is creating neighborhoods that are integrated economically, uh -huh. which all research has shown has the best outcomes for everyone. Yeah. Better schools, better retail, mm -hmm. better amenities, better open spaces mm -hmm. for a range of income groups. Right. So that city's investments go much farther. The second thing that it does is it frees up the city's capital mm -hmm. to then invest in neighborhoods that are not able to do a cross-subsidy through the market. Okay. So we can then focus through our HPD Housing Preservation and Development Group mm -hmm. in areas where the city really needs to subsidize development to make it more affordable generally to the lower income populations. Right. So that program has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. It has enabled us to really, you know, create a lot of affordable housing. Yeah. So we've created upwards of, I think, 5,500 uh, units of housing in the last uh, right. little while. Wow. And our idea is to continue to do that program. And this is through the MIH program. In addition to that, HPD has continued to build housing mm -hmm. for a range of income groups. And those numbers are actually 10 times that. So it's a big, yeah. very aggressive housing program. Mm -hmm. And um, there are programs within it that are geared to different, different sort of groups of people, mm -hmm. including the veterans, including uh, right. people at the very low incomes. And the, recently, actually, the mayor announced a very aggressive program to address the issue of homelessness in the city, mm -hmm. which is also a huge issue. Is the NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, is that under the planning department? No, it is not. It's an independent agency. Okay. Do these programs that you talk about, do they work with these programs or do they apply to their efforts? So NYCHA is a different world altogether. Okay. So the city has, I think, about 160,000 units mm -hmm. in the NYCHA program. Those are public housing. They are publicly owned. Yeah. They are not going away anywhere. They are permanent public housing. Okay. So the... They have their own income requirements on how they sort of service their people, and mm -hmm. it serves generally a lower income, very right. low income population. Mm -hmm. We have long waiting lists for those. Yeah. The idea of the MIH is that the federal government at this point is not putting any money into housing. Mm -hmm. NYCHA and most public housing across this country was built through a very federal. aggressive federal sort of uh, money coming into, mm -hmm. into the cities. That was in the 50s and the 60s. For the last two, three decades, we haven't seen that kind of investment. Yeah. So cities have really had to step up their game mm -hmm. if they want to address the issue of low-income housing. Okay. So our programs work to complement any housing that is produced. We are not worried about our NYCHA housing. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. But we know we need a lot more of that. Right. So NYCHA has come in in the last few years with, they are calling it next-gen NYCHA. So even though NYCHA itself, those 160,000 units are secure, I because see. there is no funding coming from the federal government, 
very often the um, the uh, upkeep of that housing mm -hmm. becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. So NYCHA is in need of $17 billion right. of deferred maintenance. So what they've done is they are looking at their campuses and seeing if there are opportunities where they may be, there may be land that's not very well utilized mm -hmm. because most of these are buildings in the middle of sort of very large areas, some uh -huh. open space, some parking, but some not so well used areas right. to see if they can bring in a mix of public private development there and generate some money that can then go into actually helping NYCHA right. with the upkeep. Yeah. So they're looking at their sites, they're doing on some sites additional 100% affordable housing mm -hmm. that's not geared towards generating money to go to to the upkeep but just create more housing. Mm -hmm. And then in other places they are doing what is called 50-50. So 50% market, 50% affordable. Okay. And that 50% market generates funds the funds that can go towards helping NYCHA. Okay. So. So, touching back on the um, community aspect, a big issue city planners are facing today is how do we bring in development that is um, beneficial economically to an area but without displacing culture or historical cultural institutions in an area and how do we um, preserve those institutions or establishments and I was wondering if there were any examples that you had where um, a group of people uh, local to a borough or a neighborhood maybe were angry about uh, development happening and if there was kind of a way that you went about negotiating that or working with them to develop in a way that was still non-intrusive to their uh, existence, I guess. Yeah, I think that is a a very complicated and and a and, and a you know not an easy sort mm -hmm. of um, answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, you know, New York is a very dynamic city. Mm -hmm. Its history and its cultures are layered one upon the other. Yeah. So you know, we've had sort of from 300 years ago, immigrant groups that have come and occupied certain parts of the city, mm -hmm. created a culture, and they move on, mm -hmm. and a new gr group comes in and takes that over, and, you know, the city has evolved, like the Lower East Side right. used to be the center of the Jewish culture mm -hmm. at the turn of the last century, right. and it's come up, you know, changed over the years, the Chinatown came, took, took places next to it, mm -hmm. we have a little Italy that sort of is close proximity to that and overall the city continues to evolve. So yeah. there is sort of a natural evolution process. Mm -hmm. I think communities start to get concerned when that pace is really faster mm -hmm. than the natural progression of yeah. some of these communities might be. And I think we are seeing that more and more today. Mm -hmm. And I think what has happened is that with increased globalization, um, the, the texture and the sort of the, the, the makeup of our communities has become much more multicultural. Mm -hmm. And, you know, New York is a city of immigrants. We take great pride in that. And we want to continue to be a city of immigrants. Right. But we are also a city that welcomes everyone, which means we have to grow. Mm -hmm. And 
if we don't grow, those displacement pressures are stronger. Yeah. So if we don't build more housing, as the city grows, people who are at the lower end of the income spectrum are mm -hmm. the first ones to get pushed out. So what we try to do is to strike that balance mm -hmm. between creating opportunities for new housing while trying to preserve the, the fabric that makes a community. Okay. We are not always as successful as the community would like us to be. Mm -hmm. But I think when you start engaging the communities early on, yeah. you can often do a much better job than we would do otherwise. So we have planning efforts going on right now in East Harlem, mm -hmm. Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, uh, Bay Street in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. We just did something in East New York in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, so we have a five borough strategy that we are working on. Each one of these neighborhoods is different. Mm -hmm. The communities that make it are different. We are trying to engage with each one of them. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the situation today is that because we have so much growth and so many new people coming into the city, mm -hmm. that if we did nothing, there would be displacement in these right. communities. So our intention in promulgating programs like MIH, the Mandatory Inclusionary Housing Program, mm -hmm. is to really try to do that rethinking of, of neighborhood growth and change in a thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. So when we step into a neighborhood to engage in a planning process, we are looking as much as what that neighborhood needs in terms of better schools, mm -hmm. open space, retail. How can we work to make sure that the retail that is there today, mm -hmm. which is generally the local people, can be part of the growth uh, in a in a as of right kind of development environment where the city doesn't directly control these mm -hmm. sites. It's not as sort of straightforward or yeah. as easy. It has to be, become more of an incentive-based thing or trying to influence you know, growth in a way that tries to respect that more and more. Okay. So. What out of the projects that you've worked on so far, um, whether it was for Brooklyn or Bronx or just even now, which one have you seen the have you felt has been the most successful out of the ones that you specifically have been able to work on? Um, I would say a lot of, I mean, I, you know, the city has changed so much. I've been mm -hmm. doing this for 25 years at mm -hmm. this point. So um, I would say that in Brooklyn, there has been tremendous change in mm -hmm. downtown Brooklyn. Um, you know, we've really created a mixed use, um, very vibrant community there mm -hmm. where, um, you know, 20 years ago, it, it, there was sort of a small core of offices. Yeah. The neighborhoods really turned their back on downtown Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. You know, Brooklyn Heights was great. The other sort of brownstone communities around right. downtown Brooklyn was great, but mm -hmm. no one wanted to actually go into downtown right. Brooklyn. Today, it's one of the most vibrant, desirable, fun places mm -hmm. to be. We've been very successful in bringing new retail and new housing there. Mm -hmm. We have not been as successful in bringing commercial development there. Yeah. So that would be sort of something that we would like to focus on going, mm -hmm. going into that. I am also, I think, very proud of what is happening in the South Bronx, which after you know lagging in development mm -hmm. for a number of years is now really yeah. uh, primed for new development. <clears throat> 
Melrose Commons area where the city put in a lot of investment mm -hmm. is really has taken tracts of land that were you know lying fallow mm -hmm. and actually preserved the community that was there so that's where we had a local community right. um, this is at this point 30 years ago when mm -hmm. the city first came into the urban renewal uh, place and sort of tried to redevelop it, uh -huh. it um, uh, the existing Latino community primarily formed a group they called Nos Quedamos, we're going to stay, we stay, mm -hmm. it's literally Nos Quedamos, mm -hmm. and they really influenced city policy in a major way in that uh, rather than thinking about sort of demolishing more property, mm -hmm. um, we changed our plans to work with the housing that was there. Mm -hmm to work with the community that was there and start approaching it in a more infill kind of way. Okay. And I think if you go there today, you will find a community that is a mix of different scales. Mm -hmm. There is smaller townhouses, there are pre-existing homes that were there from mm -hmm. before, and seven, eight, even 20-story apartment buildings that are largely uh, in what we would call the affordable realm, mm -hmm. but serving a range of incomes. Okay. It's interesting to recognize what is good development and then but I think you'll always have other people people on the other side arguing Absolutely. that it's um, overdone or it's gentrification and it's I think it's really an interesting dilemma to have to mm -hmm. kind of figure out what is what is gentrification and why where how can you like help people without you know displacing others Absolutely. or and I, I mean, you can never like stop people from coming into the city. And in fact, when people are more attracted to the city, that shows your, the success of the city itself. So. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, I mean that is our biggest challenge. Yeah. I would say not all gentrification is bad. Yeah. Because gentrification basically means better amenities, right? Better schools, better housing, mm -hmm. better retail. I think the challenge is. How do you do that so that it actually serves the people who are there today right. rather than just serving the new community? Right. An infusion of a higher income population mm -hmm. in a community that has not seen investment mm -hmm. is not a bad thing Yeah. because retail will only come if there is spending ability, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. To sustain good schools, you need people that will be vigilant and watching those schools mm -hmm. and also some of our schools in, in some of the poorer areas were also losing school seats because people were going away. Mm -hmm. So a city that is not growing mm -hmm. really is often you know moving towards a city that then starts to really deteriorate. Yeah. And so growth and keeping the communities that are there today mm -hmm. sort of come along with that growth yeah. is really the challenge. Yeah. And if you come up with a magic potion on that one, <laughs> I would love to hear about it. I'll let you know as soon as I do. Um, so one thing that I was curious about, so talking about education, how closely does um, the city planning department work with the, I don't know, education board or kind of that Yeah, department? we have the board of education. Right. And we have also a school construction authority right. that constructs the school. We work closely with them. Yeah. So what we do is we work with them in two ways. One is that every year mm -hmm. we provide them with all of the data on where new housing is going, 
where we expect there to be growth mm-hmm. and what kind of housing, what kind of growth. You know, apartment buildings, single family homes, yeah. serving what range of you know incomes so that that information feeds into their projections for the requirements for new school seats. So that is sort of on a global city level. We work closely with them. We have a very strong population division here mm-hmm. that does the analyses and then provides them with that, that data. Yeah. The second way we work with them is anytime we engage in a neighborhood planning effort, mm-hmm. we then look closely at the needs of that particular neighborhood, where the schools are, mm-hmm. what the enrollments is, mm-hmm. how do our projections work with what is there, and if there's a need for a new school, mm-hmm. then we work with SCA to bring a new school, find a site for it, yeah. figure out a way to make that happen. So for instance, in East New York, where we went and did a, a, zoning, a, a zoning and a neighborhood planning um, effort last year, mm-hmm. uh, we realized that there, with the population that we were going to bring in, we were, this was an area where housing wasn't allowed today, most of it where we created this opportunity for new housing, mm-hmm. that there would be a need for new schools. So we worked with SCA, there was one city-owned parcel there and we created uh, an opportunity for a thousand seat new school mm-hmm. and some uh, additional affordable housing on that piece. Okay. And so, yes. We continue to do that with them as we go through neighborhoods. And so, do, their, do schools fall under the same zoning um, areas that, the, that you guys designate? Like, for the number of students in one area, depends on that whatever zoning area that they're it's more or do they have their own they have their own yeah. they are you know because it's it's also they're constantly looking at age groups whether it's the primary schools that I need see. more kids or middle schools or mm-hmm. high schools tend to be citywide so mm-hmm. it's really the elementary school where they do a lot of uh, sort of their projections this mayor also um, has provided pre-k opportunities for anyone in the city Every child in New York City today Mm -hmm. has the opportunity to enroll in a pre-K program. That is new. So we had to find sites to put these new Mm pre-K programs across the city. So we worked closely with the school, uh, uh, you know, the Department of Education on that effort Mm -hmm. in trying to find sites where they could be located in many instances there were existing schools where you could add a pre-K program, mm-hmm. but in other areas we had to find new sites to do so. Right. But the, the, the sort of projection and the need for the new schools comes from them. Mm-hmm. We work with them in trying to make sure we can accommodate that. Okay. So quickly, uh, in the last sort of 10 minutes that we have, I did want to touch on resiliency. Since Sandy, um, the Hurricane Sandy, how has resiliency become a bigger focus within the department. Was it something that existed before Sandy and what are the efforts to build resiliency within a city? So we had been focused on resiliency way before Sandy Mm -hmm. hit us because you know it's as a planner you know that these are issues you need to deal with. Mm -hmm. We are a coastal city. Most people don't realize that New York City has over 500 miles of waterfront. Yeah all our boroughs are on the waterfront Mm -hmm. and we also have very diverse communities on the waterfront Mm -hmm. so lower manhattan you know where we're sitting right now with like 30 40 story buildings is in a flood zone Mm -hmm. as are the 
little fishing villages out in City Island in mm -hmm. the Bronx or Far Rockaway, which is a peninsula out in Queens, mm -hmm. or you know the entire east coast of um, uh, east shore of Staten Island, right. the Atlantic Seaboard in Brooklyn, Coney Island. So we have areas that are very, very different. Right, it, all along our our waterfront. I think Sandy really just brought to everyone's attention things that we all knew, but maybe hadn't. You know, people. As, as a kind of in the a, back of their minds as in the back of their minds yeah. so what we have been doing since then is we have um, looked at strategies that are more citywide mm -hmm. in making sure that our zoning and building requirements are not impediments to making buildings more resilient okay. the most immediate need after Sandy was to make sure that our um, mechanical rooms and our utilities are not in the basements where they often are placed when you're building a building, right? Uh -huh. So we had huge power outages. Yeah. NYCHA in particular, you know, was really um, affected by uh -huh. it. And part of it was that everyone had their mechanical rooms, their boilers, their so uh, generators in the, in the, in yeah. the ground, low, lower floors. Uh -huh. So the first thing we did across the board was to encourage moving those things up. And if that meant you had to take a livable space somewhere to put them, mm -hmm. that we would allow you to rebuild that elsewhere on your site. So that was sort of emergency measure. We went and did that immediately. Mm -hmm. We are also looking at this point at 10 different communities across the five boroughs mm -hmm. to see how the different neighborhoods that I described to you each have their own challenges. Mm -hmm. So how do we address those in a neighborhood context? We are a mixed-use city. We often have streets that have retail on the ground floor, housing above. Mm -hmm. So if your ground floors are now going to be flooded, as you know, new floodplains are coming up, we are realizing that if there's water coming, mm -hmm. in some instances, the bottom two, three feet, but also somewhere in some places up to eight to 10 feet, mm -hmm. maybe in what is called a flood zone. Right. So new building requirements would require you to not have habitable space below that, okay. at least not habitable residential space. Mm -hmm. If you do commercial space below that, you have to waterproof it. I see. Which is a huge expense. Right, especially because I feel a lot of them would be brownstones as well. They're actually not even brownstones. Many of them are real beach communities. Uh, you know, these were like summer homes that were right. over the years been winterized. Yeah. But we also have apartment buildings and, you know, townhouse construction mm -hmm. in, in some of those areas. So we are looking at options for how can you do this in a way that keeps our streetscape vibrant, mm -hmm. doesn't create dead walls. We don't want to see blank walls right. going to eight feet. So how do you make that happen? Landscaping, creating different levels, allowing people to do you know, steps in different ways. Mm -hmm. In some cases, raising the streets themselves where that is an option. Yeah. So there are many strategies. We are also working with the um, federal government to look at coastal strategies. Mm -hmm. So with Army Corps, we are looking, particularly in Staten Island, we, we are looking at creating sort of a, a, um, a berm along the beach so that the next time there is an event like that, the mm -hmm. water doesn't actually go into the community and there is a seawall that protects it. I see. So we have those efforts going on in, along the east um, side of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, and you know some of these are at the stage of being um, 
researched and designed, mm -hmm. and some of them are at a point where we are actually implementing them. Okay. So, so is so resiliency is if I were to define it is, um, for what I've also learned in the past is more than just emergency uh, preparedness. It also involves the strengthening of communities after totally um, after a, a disaster, a natural disaster, and. So what does that mean exactly? Does that mean having community leaders uh, inform communities about emergency preparedness, or does it go? Is it past just emergency preparedness? But if there's like an economic um, issue or something that happens, totally. So I mean, there's the climate resiliency, right? But then there is a resilient community, and mm -hmm. it's different, right? Right? It's it really is about making sure not just as you said, that you can go through an event like this mm -hmm. and come out of it with your buildings intact, mm -hmm. but how does that impact your your ability to get to work, yeah. where you shop, where you send your children to school, mm -hmm. where you go, you know. So all of those things are part of this, this resilience right. of a community. So as part of our sort of work with neighborhoods, the first step is really to educate people about the mm -hmm. impacts that these kinds of things can have. Mm -hmm. And then what we are doing is presenting strategies to them. It's a, it sort of is a balance. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, if you want to live on the waterfront, it will require a change in the way the buildings are built there, right? right? Um, we have worked with communities to show them options. If we have to have retail, which is essential, mm -hmm. right? If you live, we are not a city that where you take, get into the car and drive 10 miles to go, go shopping. You know, most of us are used to mm -hmm. being able to walk to the grocery store and pick up a carton of milk or yeah. um, take the subway or the bus to wherever we need to get. Mm -hmm. So how do you continue to do that in these waterfront communities? Mm -hmm. We've engaged people in, in figuring out various options and also understanding that dealing with climate does involve changing the way we live in some ways. Right. So yes, for the emergency events, we have evacuation areas you can go to. We have you know, uh, safe places mm -hmm. where you can go to. As I said, we are already moving all our mechanical and other equipments to areas that are less likely to be impacted. Mm -hmm. But this is just resi water resiliency. Right. We've had wind events. We have heat events. Mm -hmm. So it's a much broader sort of how do you make buildings that are more um, sustainable, mm -hmm. energy efficient. Mm -hmm. So we have efforts going on. The city is trying to encourage um, the reduction in our carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. We have a program called 8050 so that it by 80%, um, we want to reduce our carbon footprint right. by 80%. By by build, would that mean um, converting buildings to be more sustainable, or just new buildings? No, uh, we we are a built-up city. We, yeah. we are a dense city. Yeah. So we are encouraging people to review their mechanicals, particularly high-rise buildings, yeah. to see how we can make them more energy efficient. Right. And there's money involved in doing that. Mm -hmm. There are programs that you know the city has, the state has, the federal government has that offers some mm -hmm. uh, incentives. But I think first, it really is important for people to understand why it is important to yeah. do that. And I think Sandy was a huge wake-up call for everyone in that sense. Touching on sustainability quickly, there was a uh, an article I read about um, 
how certain European cities design their complexes so that they're not dense in the middle, but rather they're on the edges of the sidewalk so that there's a courtyard in the middle. And it allows for passive ventilation so that rooms mm -hmm, and apartments mm -hmm. have windows on both sides. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if there, if that's something um, that you would consider for New York City or if it exists in New York City. Um, anyway, just uh, based off the article I read, it mentioned how it reduces energy consumption because in the summer times you don't have as much of a need for mm -hmm. air conditioning because there's mm -hmm. more ventilation going through windows. Yeah. And if that's if certain um, infrastructural things like that in architecture are being considered for new developments. So there's a lot of work going on to make our buildings more energy efficient, more um, sort of uh, work with nature rather yeah. than work against nature. Mm -hmm. I think what you're describing, Barcelona has those yes. sort of courtyards. Uh, but I think they have historically developed like right. that. We have buildings, we, we have sort of the way New York, most of New York is developed is that there is a block and there is a sort of a, what we call a donut in the back, which is an open space, which is the backyards of, of buildings and they often come together mm -hmm. to create sort of a donut in the back and then there are buildings all around the front. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we are looking at is we have, um, you know, now in our building code for new buildings, mm -hmm. we have built in sort of requirements that require people to be more energy efficient. Mm -hmm. But there is also a movement going on in new buildings now to create what is called passive house, mm -hmm. which is similar to what you're describing. Um, strategies may be different in a more built up city like New York mm -hmm. than they can be in an area where you can get the cross ventilation. Right. But even without the cross ventilation, if you have larger um, sort of insulation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in areas, getting um, sort of shades where you have more sun coming into the building, mm -hmm. whether that's through vents or that is through awnings or through, so, you know, we are seeing a lot more of the passive house technologies right. that are really adapting themselves to a high density context, mm -hmm. such as New York City. and. I think once people realize that this really, for the residents in the long run, it is cutting their energy costs a lot more, it is becoming more and more attractive to people, even if that means putting more money up front mm -hmm. into creating these buildings. But the challenge for us is to see how our existing buildings can become more energy right. efficient. It's easier to do it when there is new building being built. Yeah. And that's where we've done a lot of our focus. So what we've done is we went through what we called a green zoning text amendment mm -hmm. about, I would say, five years ago, maybe a little longer, where we sort of said in the city, for instance, in an existing building, if you wanted to add more insulation mm -hmm. on your walls, mm -hmm. that you could do it without it adding to your floor area counts. Okay. So that zoning would not penalize you for doing that. I see. If you want to put windmills in certain parts of the building, we're mm -hmm. letting you do that. We're encouraging solar panels on yeah. the roofs. Mm -hmm. So those things you can do on existing buildings, mm -hmm. and we've made sure that if you do that, we would not, you know, in an existing building, penalize you for doing that by you know, if there are height restrictions, we waive those. If mm -hmm. there are floor area restrictions, we waive those to, to within limits mm -hmm. so that you can actually do things like that. Okay. Yeah, no, I think those sorts of efforts are exciting, um, especially just to see how people work, like you mentioned, with their environment rather than trying to 
benefit themselves against it. Right, um, right. And I mean, we've, we've had that mindset, you know. Yeah. You build whatever you like and you can always heat it, you can always air condition it. Yeah. And there is an increasing awareness of what that does to the environment. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, it's a generational thing as well. I yeah. think you guys are much more in tune with that than generations before you were. And mm-hmm. I think it's a very healthy and a very uh, positive direction. Okay, well, I think that about wraps up my questions for the amount of time we have. Um, Thank you so much again for speaking with me on the Common Thread podcast. It's been lovely to hear your insights and really just learn so much about New York City and what you do here. It's my pleasure, and um, good luck to you in all the work that you're going to be doing in this direction. Thank you again.